I've, I've enjoyed playing here. This has been over 20 years that I've, I've been coming to Royal Melbourne. This way golf should be played. We love coming down under. Look, it's phenomenal to play. The quality of the golf's been great, but the enthusiasm of the people's been the thing that's just been amazing. Tier of courses that I'm willing to shave my neck for in Kingston Heath and Victoria. Get me out of bed to shave. Especially somewhere like Australia in the sand belt, and I have so many great memories of being down there. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Australian Golf Passport. I'm Scott Warren and I'm joined by Matt Mollica. G'day, Matty. Hi, Scott. Good to see you again and uh, great to talk about the second of the two host courses for the upcoming Australian Open this week. Yeah, I'm really pumped to talk about Victoria Golf Club. We've very generously been given some time by both Lily Callow and Matt Griffin, who are both very, very accomplished golfers and longtime members of Victoria Golf Club uh, with some great insight about the course and their time as members there. Yeah, they've played there for years. They've played at a high level. They've seen the course for years prior to that big project that they undertook in 2019 where they redid greens and drainage and lots of other things around the course. Yeah, really chuffed to get their insight and, and their views on the holes and, and the club. Now, Matty, get to some news of the week in a second. But first, there's a small mea culpa from the previous episode. Uh, we spent 45 minutes celebrating Kingston Heath and we forgot to mention the Southerly Buster. Uh, it was mentioned on Instagram, so we popped up a recipe for the drink. Uh, but as a longtime fan of the Southerly Buster, do you want to do you want to give it some love? It's something that I thought was unique to Kingston Heath, and it isn't. Uh, a few clubs in the Sandbelt do it. Uh, Kingston Heath does it really, really well. There's a few old pewter tankards that belong to members of generations past that are kept in the freezer. When you water one on a blisteringly hot summer day where you've been baked by a northerly wind for four hours is not a lot better than coming into the clubhouse and getting a southerly buster in one of those icy cold tankards. The southerly buster is the colloquial term for a really cooling breeze late in the day. A hot summer wind that seems to ramp the temperatures up in Melbourne comes from the north and sometimes late in the day, the wind will die down and then change direction, come in off the bay and be much colder and bring the temperature down a solid 10 degrees. So, and, and yeah, the drink takes its name from that. Sort of like Melbourne's version of the Fremantle Doctor. Now, Matty, that on a similar note, I should, I should flag quickly. We also forgot to talk about the Club Sanger at Metro, which is a pretty impressive bit of kit in its own right. So I don't know if we need to start talking about food every episode. Obviously, we celebrated the Nash Burger, but shout out the uh, the Club Sanger at Metro too. Yeah, I had one of those earlier in the year, and I'm a bit ashamed that I forgot to call it out in that episode because it was a thing of beauty. And if we were going to just periodically touch on the highlights, the, the culinary highlights at various clubs and courses, that yeah, that makes the short list. Now, Matt, also, you've organised a special surprise for our listeners at the end of this episode. Uh, do you want to do you want to give them a little hint of what that might be? Yeah, we we there was a little little musical highlight that we touched on uh, in the Kingston Heath episode, and we might just keep some of our powder dry and save that for the very end of the podcast for those who listen through right to the conclusion. But I can I can guarantee that it'll be worth the wait. Yes, indeed. Uh, now, on to news of the week uh, very quickly. Royal Queensland has announced that it's building a short course on that land that it owns east of the bridge uh, that goes over the river. Long time ago, the course went out into that bit of land. When the bridge was duplicated, 
they were required to stay west of the bridge. Uh, and, and the course was obviously redesigned then by Mike Clayton and his associates around maybe, I think, I want to say 2007. Uh, so OCM announced this week that they are building a short course out on the on that land east of the bridge. So exciting for them. Obviously, people who've seen what they've done at Kingston Heath will be excited to see a similar thing out at RQ. So yet another reason to, to include that in your itinerary if you're going to be in Brizzy. They're becoming a really interesting add-on to an existing 18-hole facility within a number of different clubs. It seemed that there was this trend of pouring money into high-end practice facilities, clubhouses, but I'm, I'm, I'm most excited to see little short-course developments like this. I think that they probably serve the greatest good. They serve as a great nursery for members' kids and juniors making their way into a club it's it's brilliant to see and obviously a lot of clubs can't do it because of the space required but those who do have that luxury and are taking that uh, opportunity to embark on such a project that's fantastic to see yeah certainly the cost the bang for your buck without naming names i know one leading australian club has contemplated a world-class practice facility rebuild and a course renovation of greens and bunkers and some other changes to their course and the cost for the practice facilities 25% more than the budget for a complete course rebuild. And I think that just goes to show that those practice facility that have been a bit of an arms race recently with clubs trying to attract and retain elite players, they're bloody expensive things. Yeah. And they, I think they probably serve fewer people within a club than most would first think. Yeah, I think um, you're absolutely right. Now, also on the news of the week, and to keep the streak alive, Maddie, New South Wales, as you mentioned, has pulled out the trees on the inside of the dog leg on the third hole. Uh, years in the making. Massive congratulations to uh, Super Mark Parker, particularly, who's been working quite closely with National Parks to make sure they were comfortable that we would do the right things the right way. Um, of course, that's what Mark does in every facet. He's one of the best uh, supers in Australia. And those trees are gone. I understand Mark might have actually manned the chainsaw himself. Such was his relief to finally get a green light. And and the hole looks as as improved as you would think getting rid of those monstrosities. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it in person. Your photos, your before and after photos from the tea, the hole just looks so much better for that already. Such a small, simple change, but so effective. I assume you've had some key rings or various other things made from all the timber that was acquired during that process, Scott, like a member edition fob or a, it's a bottle idea. opener or something. Some timber timber drink coasters, perhaps. But yeah. uh, oh, it's just magnificent to see them gone. And it allows that, that native vegetation to, to thrive. That's the thing that there's so much great stuff hiding under all of these thickets of trees on golf courses all over the world. And as, as Mike Clayton commented about it, you know, the after is always better. It's never even close. And he's right with this as he is with most things about golf. So that's, uh, that's your news of the week. And we are on to Victoria Golf Club. Maddie, it's one of my favorite places on the sand belt. It's got something about it that I can't necessarily articulate, but a charm and a warmth uh, and a character that I think sets it apart. It's one that I always tell people they must see if they're going to be down on the sand belt. Uh, and part of that for me has nothing to do with the golf course. It's the stay and play. So they offer a stay and play and you sleep in the clubhouse upstairs, little sort of, I know you describe them as 
you know, school camp type rooms or dorm rooms, single beds, the toilets down the hall. There's nothing, there's nothing high end about it, but that's what makes it so good. Uh, and I, if I'm going to be going down to Melbourne, I always, if I can just stay at Vic and, you know, you wake up to these long shadows and the ground staff are preparing the course and you go down to Brecky and the club kind of comes to life for the day around you as you're getting ready to play. And it's just a really special experience uh, for golfers who've stayed in some of the dormy houses at UK clubs. It's probably a similar, a similar thing. Uh, but for me, Maddie, that's when I think of Vic, I get to the golf course soon enough, but I think about that experience and what it adds to a trip to the Sandbelt. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful base from which you can go and explore a few other courses. The time that you spend in that beautiful old clubhouse is is really memorable and really enjoyable. You walk around and have a look at the Peter Thompson room, which is a big collection of memorabilia of both his and there's some of Doug Backley's as well, an amateur who won the British Amateur in 54 when when Tomo won the Open in 54. And they celebrate that and they they celebrate the the achievements of those players really well. There's other things, stacks of other things to look at in the clubhouse, but that dinner on the night that you arrive where you, you don your jacket and tie, breakfast the next morning before heading out at dawn, coming in for a light lunch afterwards. Uh, it's a great way for overseas visitors to guarantee access to the club and then help with scheduling their, their trip mm. to the sandbelt as well. An absolute no-brainer. It's comfortably the best clubhouse on the sandbelt. I think it is, yeah. Oh, Yeah. There were a few things that I was mulling over in in preparation for this episode, and that was one of them. And I, yeah, there's there's little nooks and crannies, and there's so much space, and there's so much interest within. It, it flows really well throughout that whole building, and your accommodation upstairs is serviceable, and that's really all you need because you you probably if you if you visit in a cooler month, you're probably having a drink after dinner near that big fireplace downstairs really the only time you're going to be spending in your room is the time you're sleeping. And yeah, it might, it, it might be the best. The other now, thing we- that I was thinking about in preparation for the episode, much like you were saying, it's hard to articulate or hard to exactly put your finger on it. I remember I wrote a whole by whole review for, on an online forum years and years ago about Victoria. And I, I remember making the comment that it was greater than the sum of its parts because there's no, there's no four hole stretch of, oh my God, moments like there is with your 13 through 16 span at New South Wales or three through seven at Royal Melbourne or that four hole stretch at Kingston Heath that we were talking about in the previous episode. But there's just excellent golf, one hole after another, after another, after another. And I think that there's also there's also a grandeur to the course that not a lot of others possess. And I think that whether you can articulate that or not, you you sense it. It's near palpable when you when you're walking around that course. And a, yeah, I think that's a that's an uncommon characteristic that really elevates Victoria in comparison to a lot of other courses in Australia. Yeah, I think that grandeur of the of the property is a really good shout. And the way that you know, for starters, the back nine of Victoria would have the best terrain on the sandbelt outside of RM West. Obviously, very close to RM West, you can you could hit a hit a ball from the second tee on the west over 17 east and landed on 13 at Vic. You know, it's it's very close. Uh, so it benefits from that same great land. But I like the way that you, you kind of circle that great terrain. On the front nine, you, you touch it a little bit, but you really get that run from 10 through 16 that is just up and over and around that big hill. Uh, as a result, you've got lots of long views 
yeah, as a result of the land and also the significant tree removal, so many nice long views across that property. They've got really great kind of low vegetation that adds that texture to the place. I feel like if any course on the sandbelt was going to go full Oakmont and drop every large tree on the on the property, I think Vic would be the best candidate. Uh, the ridges and the slopes are so kind of characterful and great vegetation, beautiful bunkering. You know, I think to be able to look around and just see 150 acres of that, I don't think anyone in Australia will probably ever do that. It's probably a pipe dream, but I would love to see Vic without a single piece of veg over knee high. Yeah, no cypress, no tea tree, no manna gums. It would be truly striking. I, it would. I can't see it happening. It would blow the doors off people. Yeah, and it's wild to think back, you know, Clates, regardless when he was our guest about presenting to Vic in the mid-90s and showing what had happened at Kingston Heath and saying, you need to do the same thing, and a board member telling him, they've ruined that golf course, Kingston Heath, taking out all those trees. Uh, it's wild to think that that's, you know, I assume that guy's still not on the board, <laughs> given what they've what they've achieved in the last 20 years. Um, but it just goes to show that kind of myth that people were sold in the dark ages of golf course design that corridors of trees so that you couldn't see another group on the course and all of a sudden turf suffers and the greens are patchy and powers everywhere and you know you rip the trees out and you get the light and the water competition is less for water you get air movement and Vic's a great example like that turf is as good as golf turf can get I think. Since that renovation three years ago now those pure distinction greens that's the same green grass that uh, Peninsula Kingswood went with that's in great shape and putting beautifully. They've sort of got back to that time where you'd visit Vic and think, give them three weeks and they could host a, a, a big tournament or a tournament of significance. They're, they're conditioned beautifully and all they need to do is just turn the volume up a tiny bit more and they're good to go. And that was missing for a while, about a decade ago. I remember when I was a, a much younger golfer and I'd go along to Victoria, I had that thought and they've they've got their mojo back again in, in that regard with, with their conditioning the low-level vegetation, as you described, that has been singing this year. Yeah, of course, looks wonderful. It'll be it'll be a, a joy to watch it on TV. Now, Matty, before we get to our thoughts on the holes, I think uh, probably the best thing to do off the top is for us to hear from Lily Callow. Okay, welcoming in a longtime Victoria Golf Club member, Lily Callow, uh, but also importantly, star of maybe the sweetest proposal video I've ever seen on the internet. <laughs> Uh, and we'll share that on our Insta, but a magnificent uh, proposal by her fiancé, Nick Mills. Uh, Lily, welcome in. Thank you very much for having me. That um, that proposal video, very recent, so congratulations. Thank you uh, But also much. was was taken on a pretty large golf trip that, that you and Nick have recently been on. Uh, talk us a little bit through that, given this is, a, this is a golf trip podcast. I'm curious to hear a little bit up front about that recent trip. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess the trip was actually meant to be a holiday to start with and then ended up being a golf trip pretty quickly. I hadn't been to Europe before, uh, so had to tick a few sort of normal travel tip uh, boxes, but then, yeah, managed to play some pretty amazing golf courses in England, France, uh, Ireland and the Netherlands. So I think we probably played 12 or 13 rounds of golf while we were away for almost a month. Um, but yeah, the best experience and such a great way to see Europe as well was to play some of these courses and sort of get you out of the cities and see the suburbs as well. We had a wonderful time. 
Maddie, in the in the video that I referenced, I don't know if you've seen it, but Lily absolutely smokes a drive with this <laughs> down the line video, and then Nick kind of creeps up in the background while she's pulling her tea out of the dirt, and then he's on a knee. And uh, I need to know what hole that was and what course because I was trying to pick it and I couldn't. So it's the 18th hole at Chantilly in Paris. Um, yeah, no, absolutely beautiful. Pretty good spot stunning. for a proposal. Backdrop for sure. No, it was absolutely beautiful. Um, although I will say, despite making good contact with the ball, I actually didn't find it. So I think I was a little bit distracted. <laughs> you had bigger priorities by the time you got to your drive. Yeah. So Lily, tell us a little bit about your your golfing background. So I grew up playing golf uh, at Victoria. I joined there in 2007 and was sort of nurtured through their junior girls golf program that was run by Jan Jelliff at the time, who is just absolutely amazing and has been the catalyst for so many young girls, um, particularly at Victoria, but um, at a lot of other golf clubs as well. The program that they ran there was really fantastic in drawing in young girls to play together. Uh, with the support of, of a number of women who really nurtured all of us to learn the rules and, and and play together growing up, which was really, really lovely. Did that feel like a bit of an outlier at the time? I always reflect when I was starting golf as a kind of early teenager in the 90s that there tended to be eight junior boys to every, say, one junior girl. Was Vic an outlier in that way when, you know, 2007? Or is it is it more that Melbourne's a bit stronger or that the women's representation was already getting a bit better by then? Oh, definitely. I think Victoria was an outlier in how many women or, and, and junior girls they have um, and have had. I think, you know, girls breed girls. You know, it's it's really easy once there are a few of you to kind of keep luring in them in. And those, those women were so supportive um, in making sure that we had tea times and representation um, and teaching us the rules as well um, along the way. You know, you'd almost always have a walker with you and, you know, you felt comfortable and that you could ask questions and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, it was just like a really great way to sort of learn learn the rules and sort of get involved with the culture of the club and, and feel comfortable. Um, so I think that, yeah, the women at Victoria put a lot of emphasis on that. I know for me, I didn't even know we had junior male members at the same time. <laughs> I would only play with the girls, which was really nice and a great way to sort of feel comfortable in learning the rules and, and how to play at, at such a high sort of quality course, it's which fantastic. can be very intimidating a lot of the time. Yeah, I think we we don't appreciate often as men that intimidation or that limitation. And I I got a little snapshot of it a couple of years ago when I'd been watching the golf and my daughters were milling around kind of the lounge room and the men's golf finished and the LPGA came on. And my daughter was was about six then and she kind of jumped out of her seat and she was like, oh my God, can girls play golf on TV too? <laughs> and it had never occurred to me that, you know, I'm watching men play football or men play golf and I'm a, I'm a boy and then a man and that, that feels like something that connects me to it. And it never occurred to me until that moment. It's so important. They see that I can do that. Uh, yeah, and definitely. That, and that she's watching men's golf with that kind of disconnection of, well, I'll never be that. So it's kind of, there's a barrier. But it's just really great to hear that, that golf is becoming more in that vein. And probably having tees rated so that men and women can play, not just in the same group, but play together and, and be kind of social is really important part of that too. Yeah, for sure. The flexibility of being able to mix up which tees you're playing as a male or a female is, yeah, it's really fantastic now that we've got that option. Like I know for me, when I'm playing on a Saturday and I might be in a group with, you know, three men, I'll try and play off the blue tees just because it's way more social to be able to tee 
off, you know, whenever you want to. You don't have to wait for me to tee off the reds at the end. And um, But if I'm playing with the women, I'll almost always play off the reds as well. There's a mix of men and women. We can sort of mix it up, which is good fun. But, yeah, having that comp really, I guess it facilitates the opportunity to kind of like limit the the divide between men and women on the golf course and, you know, it really improves that social factor as well. You can actually have a conversation and there's no split waiting for the men to tear off. You're hiding behind a tree or something like that, um, which does happen. Um, but yeah, no, it's just a really great way to sort of like narrow the, the divide a little bit there between men and women. Now, before we do get onto some specific course questions, I was wondering about the sand belt more broadly as, as a woman golfer and a very capable woman golfer, which clubs do red tees well uh, and which which clubs maybe they feel like a bit of an afterthought, perhaps. Um, I think I'd say a lot of the the Samuel golf courses feel like they do the red tees well. Even it's it's little things that you know make it for me as a red tee player. Um, little things that consider you know where you can stand while people are teeing off the whites or the blues, like that you're you know in a safe location. Mm-hmm. Um, I know Kingston Heath um, do a really good job with stuff like that. I think it's their 16th tee when everyone's like teeing off right at the back. They've got, you know, like a safe little barrier where you can sort of stand and you're not really in sight, things like that. I think Commonwealth also has a really good women's tee set up as well. Um, I know we're pretty lucky on the sand belt. There's amazing golf courses. And I think they've put a lot of time and effort into considering both both men and women's enjoyment of, of every course, which is good. And so on Victoria, and you've been a member there since 2007, as you mentioned, how have you seen that course evolve and change in that time? It's been a fairly uh, significant period in the club's history in terms of the course. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the course has changed quite a lot when I think back to when I was, you know, a 45 handicapper and looking for my golf ball in the tea tree every weekend. (laughs) Um, There's a lot less tea tree around now. They've taken out, you know, a lot of that sort of bracken and, you know, we've got much more sort of sandy waste and and that aligning the fairways, which in a lot of ways does make it a bit easier and more playable. But I mean, teeing off some of those lies as well is never easy. So yeah, from that perspective, the golf course has changed a lot. And obviously in 2019, we undertook the uh, greens replacement program and redid all 18 greens, uh, redid a lot of the drainage on the fairways and redid all of our tee boxes. And I think from a course perspective, it's obviously elevated our experience out there when we're playing. But I think from a culture perspective as well, it really drove home the power of change and how, you know, the culture can really be improved with something that you can be really proud of because, you know, we'd gone through that process of having to actually do the work and not being able to play at our home club and that, that really sucked, but the outcome was just fantastic and everyone's so proud of, of what we've got now and what we've got to offer on the world stage, which we'll experience next week at the Australian Open. So that's really exciting. Yeah, I think a really great part of that project was elevating holes like 5 and 12 and 17 to be, they could hold their head up in the company that they were in on the rest of the course. That was really yeah, quite striking when I went back after that work. Yeah, I think it's it's funny like some of the changes for some of the holes were so minor, but 
for some of those major changes, particularly on like five and 12 and, and even on 17. Um, it's amazing how they almost become some of your favorite holes now. They've, they've changed quite a lot and, you know, you love them beforehand. But, you know, for me, like 12s now, like the greens, like one of my favorite green complexes on the course, the way that they've managed to make changes and sort of still keep its origin, obviously. But yeah, no, it's a really, it's a really fun course to play at the moment and I'm sure it will continue to change over time but you know it's in a really really fantastic place so it's exciting and what would you say your particular favorites you know the holes you really Uh, look forward to when you're driving to golf on the weekend I think the fourth has to be the first one that that is really exciting I think it's probably one of the best par threes on the sand belt you know it probably competes with some of the other shorter par threes like the 10th at Kingston Heath but yeah, it's a very narrow green, but it's a very long green. Um, and if you miss left or right, you can really get caught in the bunkers or down in down in a very low swale. Um, so yeah, no, it's a, probably one of my favorite favorite golf holes on the sandbelt for sure. I reckon um, that, that little swale hole. front left is low key, like one of the best features on the course. It, it, yeah, it's very it's cool. short grass. You're adjacent to the green, but I've been there a couple of times and it's just getting it anywhere near. If you, if it's a front flag, you've got no room to work. And if it's a back flag, you've got so much distance to carry that you have to yeah. really nip one. I just think that's really clever. And there's almost like three tiers with the green as well. So even if you're on the green, it's it's never an easy sort of first part. You still, depending on how close you are, obviously. But um, yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of ground to work through there for sure. And obviously the two short fours, one and 15, get a lot of chat. Do you have a particular favourite between the two? Um, between the two, good question. I think I really love, it's such a dramatic opening hole, particularly when, you know, you walk in and you're standing, you know, by the terrace and you're able to watch people tee off. And I think that hole really creates a big divide in how people play it, whether you go for the green or whether you kind of lay up in front of that fairway bunker with an iron. So yeah, it's a really exciting opening hole. And something that my partner and I talk about a lot is that it's a really great match play hole. It's really exciting because there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways you could play it and pull off a really great outcome, um, which is you know the same with with 15 but yeah 15 towards the end of the course a lot of the really long hitters would love to go for it but you know it's laced with bunkers along that left side yeah it's never an easy hole when it's into the wind particularly if you're downwind and you go off the back of the green there's a, a huge swale so yeah both of them are really really testing holes but to answer your question I think the first would have to be my favorite between the two of them I love that the first is so short and being downhill on top of that, that it still is a hole that people have a crack at, even though it's yeah, the first hole of the day. Like New South Wales obviously has a 290 metre hole for the first, but no one really ever hits driver or even three wood with a card in their pocket. Yeah. So it's sort of a bit of a disappointment that it's, you know, in theory it's a short four, but it's a drive and pitch and that's that. Whereas the first at, at Vic is so reachable that even without any warm up under your belt, you're sort of like feeling like you need to have a crack. Oh, yeah. Particularly if you've got it downwind, you're like, this is a no-brainer. But then also you could get caught left bunker and then go bunker to bunker to bunker to bunker, um, which is, yeah, probably one of the the, the biggest diff- difficulties of Victoria is is the bunkering it really catches people out. Um, but, yeah, no, it's it's such a good hole. It's it's worth the risk of ending up in the bunker and having to save your second shot for sure if you can get it on there. And so what's your what's your advice after so many years playing when you take a, a visitor out for the first time? What are you telling them to look out for or what sort of shot advice are you giving them? I think there's probably two things and sounds like advice you could use on a lot of golf courses, but 
Um, I think the first one, particularly if, if you're playing off the reds or the whites, but even off the blues, Victoria, like you don't always need to take a driver. And I think as well, maybe also because of the layout of the, the course where you're ending both nines with two par fives, which is quite unique. Um, you know, you can really leave the driver in the bag for the first seven holes if you want to, but you still don't even need it on, you know, eight and nine or, you know, 17 or 18. So I think that's the first sort of consideration that I would sort of think about. But the other one is, yeah, you can steer clear of the bunkers. I think that's a pretty strategic play as well. Um, there's just a lot of bunkers out there, particularly greenside bunkers. And, you know, now that the greens have been done up and, you know, the speed of some of them can be quite quick, you know, I think there's always a risk of of ending up you know on one side to the other so yeah I think if you're if you're playing it for the first time you could probably leave the driver in the bag and if you can avoid the bunkers that would be my number one tip (laughs) excellent and obviously next week the the course is hosting the Australian Open along with Kingston Heath and the third and fourth rounds for both the men and the women uh, will be played on Victoria what holes should people be looking out for in the coverage I think from from a viewing perspective, um, like when you're at the golf course, um, a really great sort of point to sit and watch would be the end of the 11th because um, it's also the tee box for 12. You also get the tee box for 15, but you also get the green for 14. Yeah, the, from a viewing perspective, I think you can see so much golf from that little pocket and a lot of sort of different shots. You're not just watching people hit into the green all day, which is cool. Um, I think 15 is always very interesting, particularly given a lot of these guys will be going for the green from the tee, which is really exciting. So I think, yeah, I'm just excited to see a lot of these men and women and, and all abilities players, you know, really try and tear up the, co- the course, particularly given we've just undertaken these huge renovations and a lot of them haven't played, um, I guess, what we call like a new course. So, yeah, it's really exciting. I think another one will obviously be four as well, pending some of those those pin placements. Yeah, it's pretty exciting seeing how they're going to pull it off. You know, it's been a long time since we've held um, sort of a world-class golf event, so it's really exciting seeing you know, all the infrastructure go up. And I think the golf course has put a lot of time and effort into their um, sort of one percenters in, you know, getting the course ready for all the events. So it's, yeah, it's really exciting. Wonderful. We'll look forward to watching it play out. And we thank you very, very much for making time for us today. No worries at all. Thank you very much, Lily. That's um, just nodding along, listening to so much. And it's it's been wonderful, I think, Maddie, just to get our first female perspective on the pod. We're really stoked that Almost 10% of our listeners are female, and we really want to make sure that that, this podcast caters to all of our listeners. And I just think it's fascinating that from the red tees, there's perspectives and experiences that are completely different to what blokes insisting on playing the back tees will will ever see on these golf courses. I played in a club competition earlier in the year where we were all encouraged to mix up our tees. So women went near the plates and men teed off from the, the typical Saturday women's markers. We had some mixed groups so that we had different experiences within that competition field. We all came back into the clubhouse at the conclusion of our our shotgun start and had a drink and a feed and a chat. And I hope that sort of dynamic happens more and more on a Saturday and that more golfers uh, mix up their tees, that more guys realize that their course is rated for uh, men's competitive play from forward tees. That can only be a good thing, as Lily said. Yeah, and I think that that fact that the connection in the group, the social connection. If you're playing tees that are 70 metres from each other, there's that impediment every 10 or 15 minutes when you go to your respective tees that 
your conversations need to stop and and the people playing the forward tees are hiding behind trees you know as lily said to to avoid being in the way i just think the social aspect of golf is benefited when everyone in the groups tee the ball up near each other and yeah more of it now on to vic we talked about grandeur we talked about a warmth we talked about it being greater than the sum of its parts but it, it does have some real standout holes and and we'll get actually some great perspectives on particularly the the short par four first and 15th later from Mac Griffin, who uh, I think articulates the qualities of those holes far better than you and I could. And again, we chatted about it with, with Lily, but that first hole really tells you that you're in for something a bit different on the sand belt at Victoria. Um, it has some quirk, not necessarily in the architecture, um, although that fourth green with the little the little swale front left is pretty cool in that regard. But quirk in the fact that you have this 230-metre downhill par four to start, that you have essentially the same hole at the second and third. Then you have back-to-back par fives, not once but twice in the round, and to end both nines. Uh, in both instances, sort of one shorter, one longer. It's a bit quirky in that it's not presented and laid out the way that a lot of modern architecture would say, well, one needs to be a mid-length par four to get the field away and you can't have back-to-back fives and Vic doesn't do any of that. You know, it's got its own. I think that might be part of the intangible that we've kind of been circling around so far is that it does its own thing uh, and it's kind of striking for that reason. I've often wondered about the course's origins from what I can gather a really seminal figure within Victoria Golf Club was William Meader, who's described in their club history at reasonable length. He seems to have been a central figure in designing that course. He's an avid golfer, sort of founding father of Victoria, really. I sort of view him in some ways similar to Australia's answer to George Crump because he would have had no formal training in golf course design and I can't see golf course design number two that he ever did anywhere. He played a really central role in, in how that course first looked. And I often wonder if in times ahead we'll have a bit more of a light shone on him or if we'll celebrate him a tiny bit more because that course is a great achievement and it's it doesn't fit any great template, as you say, 8, 9, 17, 18, all par fives. I'd, l- I'd like to know more about him. It's a high praise to call him the George Crump of Aussie golf because obviously that achievement of Crumps at Pine Valley stands stands high. But also, I guess, to draw a comparison between the two, you know, Pine Valley is very single-minded in what it is because it was the brainchild of one man with one mission. Uh, and Vic seems to have had great stewardship through the years. Uh, and I know that Peter Thompson, who was obviously a long-time member, had talked a lot about one of the great things about the club in his view was just that the consistency of you know the membership's care for the club and the course had created this this special character and yeah often these things start with a strong founder who sets you know a direction and a purpose and it gives the people who follow them something to guide them rather than you know the board of the day feeling like they sort of have carte blanche to change the way that, that the club is. Yeah, that's a good point. There's a there's a path that's been set out and, and subsequent generations just follow. You see that in great clubs all around the world. When did you first play at Vic, Matty? More than 20 years ago. So I would have been in my mid-20s. 
So probably around about the time that, that Clates was trying to tell them they needed to change the course. Yes. Either the first or second time that I ever went there, it was on that stay and play package, which you could do as a as a Melbourneian. So you didn't have to be an interstate or overseas visitor. You could live down the road and just think, well, I'll I'll avail myself of this experience and this opportunity and I'll get to see this course. So I was I was in a position where I was slowly but surely ticking off sandbelt courses. Oh, I haven't seen that one. I haven't seen that one. Oh, I'm yet to go there. And I have I have this very clear picture in my mind of seeing Peter Thompson and Michael Clayton standing in the second fairway as I was playing a parallel fairway. And they were just chatting amongst themselves while we were finishing our front nine. And I look back now and think, oh, I can sort of guess what they were speaking about. And I wonder how many times they did that and look at what's flowed from or from from those conversations. Yeah. And I feel like their contributions to Australian golf are pretty immense. You know, like two people who've had such an influence, those conversations must have been, and who are so educated on the game and its history and its direction for the future. God, if we could have put some podcast mics in front of Clates and, and Tomo while they were having those chats, that would have been that would have been fantastic to listen to. Well, I'm 99% sure that Clates will have a very accurate recollection of some of those discussions. As he always does. <laughs> and it's really wonderful that Tomo lived to see, you know, the course reach its reach its potential. I think that's a really nice kind of symmetry given everything that he gave to that club and how passionate he was as as a kind of advocate and representative of it. I think that's a nice a nice thing that and obviously Clates was was central to that over 20 years. Yeah. What are your recollections then of, of that before version of Vic? I had my first eagle there. I remember I was playing a steel-headed Callaway driver with a HP, oh no, a DT wound ball, and I drove it onto the first green. The first first hole was this nondescript push-up green with bunkers all around it, just a straightaway hole, and drove it on and sunk some long putt. I love that um, even for like the biggest architecture wonk I know, <laughs> I ask you about your recollections of the course the first time you saw it, and it immediately goes to how you played. That's so bad, isn't it? Just golfers um, are what golfers are, and it's unavoidable even if you're Matt Mollica. So bad. Clayton's talking remember- about the course being massively overgrown. Is that your – he was talking about the yeah. 11th oh, fairway yeah. having yeah. a massive bush in the right-hand side. Is that is that your prevailing memory? Yeah, corridors of trees I remember vividly. 11, 11 was a – clear example there were trees where there are now bunkers separating 11 and 15 and there were stacks of trees on the on the right of 11 12 just didn't work 13 felt narrow it was enjoyable and you could tell it was a it was a good course and there were little things i always remember there were little bumps and swales around that fourth green back at back at that time and i remember hitting it in a greenside bunker thinking oh this bunker's sort of set back a bit and I sort of have to carry that little hollow from this bunker and then land it on the green, but then stop it. So there were these tricky little things that, you'd, that I hadn't seen very much before. It, it was enjoyable. I remember wanting to get back there and I remember a friend who was a New South Wales member who had full reciprocity came down to Melbourne the next year and I sort of latched on to that opportunity to say, well, I'll keep your company around there so I could go back and see it. I definitely wanted to go back. And it's wild to me to hear that 11 and 15 were separated by a row of trees. I think that tie-in, and again, we'll get some pictures up on Instagram and on Twitter for people who don't know it well, but that 11 and 15 with their shared bunkering down the left-hand side of both holes, the wide-open expanse, 
Like, it might be one of the most beautiful vistas in Sandbelt Golf. Uh, two of probably the best 50 holes on the entire Sandbelt. And it's incredible that they that they were presented in such a different state. I think that is, you know, the uphill, long uphill par four at, at 11, and then arguably, you know, a candidate for the best short four on the Sandbelt in 15. That's... Yeah. Uh, it's just incredible that that was not presented the way it is because you look at it now and you just think that's the only way that this piece of land should be shown. Yeah. It's just infinitely better. The, the, the after is miles better than the before. The other, the other interesting thing, we had talked in a previous life about holes that go uphill, uphill, so uphill drive, uphill approach, and how they're really hard to make work and hard to get a really good hole out of a, a long stretch of gradually ascending land. But 11 does it really, really well. And it struck me in chatting with Matt earlier in the week and then listening to Lily just now, we've touched on so many highlights throughout the round and so many good holes. And there's holes like 10, 6, 11, 13, 14 that are all good holes that have not been mentioned to this point and that we haven't touched on them, which probably speaks to the quality of the course at Victoria just as much as anything else, that those holes are really really good holes really enjoyable to play and really soundly designed and we've spent a lot of our time focusing on other obvious and clear highlights yes it's a great point and it ties back into what you said earlier about vic lacks a four hole stretch that'll blow your mind but you're absolutely right i mean if it has a four hole stretch that does that it's you know with the new 12th it's potentially 10 through 13 i think they're all really and four par fours, you know, it's not a super varied run of golf, but definitely varied types of par fours. And 10, 10's a great shout. I think that kind of diagonal drive, a little delicate uphill wedge to to that green that's so full of interest like they all are at Vic, that's a hell of a great hole. It's funny you mentioned 11 and the uphill, uphill nature. Tom Doak has, has in the past, he's talked about people ask him what's too uphill for a par four if it's, if it's a T to green all the way uphill. And his answer is, well, if it's more uphill than the 11th at Pasatiempo, it's too too steep. Like that's the that's the limit. And I think in Australian golf, maybe Vic is the 11th at Vic is the answer because it is certainly uphill, but neither shot feels like a slog or or unfair or too much. No, you just you just hope that you go too far over the back with your approach. Yeah, that you're that you're accurate with your approach. It's certainly not. Not an onerous walk to play that hole, no. No. But you're right that there's a lot of holes out there that don't maybe get adored. I think 14 is one for me that surprises me. People, obviously four is a great hole. People rave about 16. Um, I think they forget about 14 a little bit. Like it's maybe it's the fourth best of the four par threes at Vic, but I, I think it's a terrific, short enough that everyone's a reasonable chance it's uphill. It's kind of that fortress green guarded by the front bunkers benched into the hill. I really enjoy playing 14, maybe more than 7 and 16. It's a good hole, and it's another of that series of great uphill par threes on the sandbelt. You see a few of them throughout the courses in that precinct, and I'm a tiny bit surprised it doesn't get more love. I'm a, I'm a sucker for 16. I think it's... It demands a really good shot at, at a time late in the round where you, you've got your foot to the floor and you're trying to post a score. And it's just such a beautifully constructed hole. 
you come in with a reasonably long club and it's it's dead over the back. 14 is equally high quality in my mind. I think the, the notion, and there's a few examples at Vic, of being dead if you're long um, and also with longish approaches. And I think along with, you know, we mentioned that, that grass swale on the fourth, on the par three, and that's a perfect example of a feature that is difficult for a good golfer, but easier than a bunker for a lesser golfer. You know, they can putt out of it if they want to or hit a seven iron, chip and run out of it, pretty low risk. And I think holes where you're dead, long holes where you're dead if you're long are another thing that is a great evener because lesser golfers are extremely unlikely to miss long on a long shot. But a good golfer who's got more firepower, is more precise, is is more confident taking on maybe a back pin with a five iron, you know, they go long. They're the types of players that are going to miss in those spots. Uh, and they're, they're, going to, they're going to get punished by that. 10 West at Royal Melbourne is a similar example for those who are, who are strong enough to drive that green. They go long, they're going to be dead. Two at New South Wales, you don't tend to see B and C graders miss that long. You see cheeky A graders who think today's the day I'm going to land it and stop it, go long, and they're dead. And 16 is another perfect example, I think. You know, 170-odd a bit uphill. You know, a good player is going to have a short enough iron to take that on, but the lesser players are probably looking at that front trap and trying to make sure they avoid that. Talk to me a bit about 15, Matty. We've, we've got a great description from the other Matty later on, but that's um, it's a bit different to a lot of the great the other great short par fours, I think, on the sand belt. You know, it's, it kind of plays along a bit of a tightrope bridge. There's a lot of flanking bunkering. It's, it's maybe not as classically strategic as some of the others, but there's something about it that makes it really thrilling to play and to watch people play, right? Yeah, I think if you remember there, you'd probably more often than not try and hug the left side with tee shot of reasonable length. And if you were playing six times in six weeks, there'd be an occasion where you executed the tee shot perfectly and you were wrapped because you had a great line on approach and a short club into the green. And then the next time you go around the course, you think, oh, I'll just do that again. And you'd get burnt. Think, oh, I've tugged it and I'm in those traps and now I've got an 80-metre bunker shot and I've made double as quick as I could blink. You come back for your next week's game and think, oh, I think I'm going to hit five iron way out right. And you'd be in this continual dance with the hole thinking, what do I do today? And oh, I remember last time and I'm haunted by that double from a couple of rounds past. That hole would do it as well as any. It would just be such an enjoyable hole to play again and again. It is one of the great treats of getting to play those cheeky little risk-reward holes regularly, exactly as you say, that you take some risk and get away with it until the day that you don't, and then you're back to you're back to playing it with all plates on, and then you over time you build up a little bit of courage to try that shot again. And it is one of the wonderful things that, you know, and it doesn't have to be a world-class course. I think all of us have, anyone's probably got a hole at their course that they enjoy doing battle with, and they think about in a Zoom meeting on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, what am I going to do this weekend? And even, I mean, I maybe I'm just a weirdo, but sometimes I'm checking the weather. If I'm playing on Sunday, I'm checking the weather on Thursday to see what the wind direction and strength is going to be so I can kind of plan out my attack on, on the hole that, that's in my mind. It really is a great thing about golf and about conditions changing, weather changing, your capabilities changing from day to day. And yeah, Vic members must love moving through their round and trying to think about 
you know, sneak a peek of where the flag is on 15. Oh, okay. I want to be in this position. Am I hitting it well enough? Yeah, it's, um, that's really cool. Definitely not weird, Scott. Lots of us, lots and lots of us do that. That's one of the great things about the game. Now, a question for you without notice. I'm trying to, trying to get an idea of placing Vic and not ranking, not ranking courses because that's not what we're here to do. But thinking about someone who's coming down to the sandbelt and we've talked about the fact that the play and stay can make Vic an easier and more sensible booking than some of the others might be, make it a centerpiece of your trip. If you were contacted by someone who was coming down, not a massive architecture buff, but they want to see great courses and the experience of playing at each of the Sandbelt courses and clubs is going to be the whole of the experience is important to them. How many courses are you putting on their itinerary before Victoria? Two, probably. Two Sandbelt courses. So I assume that's the West and Kingston Heath? Yeah. I think that's where I'm at as well. They're all, I mean, all those next tier of, or top tier even of the Sandbelt courses, they're all so good and interesting that, yeah, it's like, what's the thing that sets them apart from one another? I wanted to say as well that I thought Vic would probably be number three after those two. You know, and the East at Royal Melbourne gets gets a hard time, I think, by being in the shadow of the West. You know, we've barely talked about about any of the holes on the east when we've been going through episodes and sort of talking about, oh, this is a great hole. What are the other great holes of that type on the sandbelt? Potentially, if RM East had its own club and its own story and history, maybe it would get a little bit more love. But I think, yeah, I'm with you, Vic. Vic at number three, as we talked about with the plan stay, it's going to add something to your trip that that the others can't add. You know, there's something about staying in a 100-year-old clubhouse that Meriton Suites can't <laughs> necessarily match. Yeah, particularly if you've got a if you've got a non-golfing partner travelling with you and that's your accommodation for one night, your meals are taken care of, there's a couple of other little things to do in that neck of the woods bayside while you're out on the course for four or five hours. There's Brighton shops, there's the little village at Hyatt that's that's not far away where there's plenty of food and beverage options and it's just so practical and so enjoyable to go and visit from a from a non-golf perspective. You touched on East, just to just to circle back to that for a second. I'm I'm really looking forward to the East episode. <laughs> That's probably going to be some stage in January, I assume we do that. A course that warrants its own podcast episode. It's it comprises one third of the composite course. There's plenty of other little highlights throughout that round on the outer paddocks. Yeah. Without digressing too much, yeah. My last time I was on the sandbelt, I played Vic. Uh, and I played RM East, and I recall getting the text from my host saying that we're playing the East course, and, you know, there's you kind of think, oh, I haven't seen the East in must be almost 10 years. Like, there's an upside for missing out on West, and I was really surprised to rediscover East and, and just how bloody good that place is. Uh, so maybe you'd you'd have that fourth after, after Vic for that trip that the person's taking. Now, I want to ask you, too, about you touched on some of those attractions of staying, uh, things to go and see if you're staying at Vic. And it's one of the things that people seem to um and ah about when they're planning a trip to the Sandbelt is, do I stay out near the golf or do I stay in the city? And obviously Melbourne, and I say this as a Sydney sider, one of the magnificent cities of the world. Like it's a spectacular place to set yourself up for a week and go and discover all the laneways and that's terrific. But the drive to golf isn't necessarily that terrific if you can avoid it. And it's probably going to be the question of, are you on 
a holiday with some golf involved or are you on a golf trip? But the first time I went to the sand belt and I had, I had very little cash at my disposal and I, I told a mate in Melbourne that I was going to stay at the sand belt hotel so that I was out near the courses. And I was told in, in no uncertain terms that I was not to stay at the sand belt hotel. Uh, I should sleep in my car before I did that. A uh, good place for a beer, not a great place to spend the night. But it's always seemed to me that the accommodation options, if you want to stay out around the golf courses, there's not that many that jump out. Maybe Airbnbs this day and age would be an option um, if you're not going to stay at Vic. But I feel like there's something about being near the golf that you're playing when you wake up. Yeah, if you're if you're a stone's throw from the course, you're down in that Bayside region, you've got a short walk to to get your morning coffee before you go and tee off or you've got the tiniest little commute to get to the course. There's there's something really attractive about that. Airbnb's definitely the most popular approach for the people I know that travel from a long way to come and play golf in that area for a short time over multiple courses. They'll stay in those Bayside suburbs like Sandringham and Beaumaris, Blackrock, Brighton, Hyatt. Stacks, yeah, stacks of cafes, little boutiques, restaurants, all sorts of things to do before and after your time on course. And that can be for a couple. It can be for a group of four. That, yeah, that's the alternative to staying at Vic, I think, if you're going to stay locally. And then, as you said, if, you, if you're going to opt to stay closer to town and you're at St Kilda or South Bank or in, somewhere in the CBD, you just negotiate that 25-minute drive out to wherever you're playing that day. Mm. Now, regardless of where you're staying, what's the name of the pizza place you took me to after we played that time? Mr Wolf? Where, oh, you, had a, where you had a failed date in your early 20s. That is yep. fantastic. That is... I've eaten a lot of pizza in a lot of places and, and a post golf pizza and some red at Mr. Wolf is, is a big shout out. Yeah. That deserves a bit of a free ad. Yeah. Inkerman Street, St. Kilda, Mr. Wolf, Karen Martini and her husband founded that a long time ago. By and large, good memories there. Failed date. Not so much. Uh, You've done okay since. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Now, Matty, we're dithering, officially dithering. So why don't we throw to Matt Griffin and then after Matt Griffin, a special song to end the episode. Yeah, got to hang around for that. Beauty. Thanks for the chat, mate. Always fun. Enjoy Australian Open Week, Scott. Matt speaking with us now directly after his first round at the Australian PGA, uh, a week prior to the Australian Open, starting down here in Melbourne at Kingston Heath. And Victoria, welcome, Matt, and thanks so much for your time in speaking with us this afternoon. No, thanks for having us. I'm excited to talk about Victoria. Really excited to get your insight into the course, a course that you know and love uh, and you've played for so many years. If you wanted to just bring the listeners up to speed on your uh, time at Victoria and your time there from a very, very tender age in your golfing life. Yes, I, I was um, grew up just uh, south of the 13th green at, at Victoria, so close right in the middle of all the, a lot of the sand belt. As a local, especially in that time, started, started at Cheltenham Golf Club, which is... Uh, a lot of people will know it's just across from the sec- uh, the first green and uh, very lucky to start there. It was a time when there were a lot of good young golfers and there, so it was a good good growing up in, in the game. And, and then sort of the rite of passage of the better players at Cheltenham is that they jump the fences, what the Cheltenham members like to say, at, um, at about 16. So I um, I was one of those who jumped the fence. I've, I've kept my membership at Cheltenham and still love playing there, but as a Someone who wanted to be a golfer, you needed to go to a bigger club and uh, being at Victoria uh, was a great choice. 
I was um, coached by Bruce Green at the time and and sort of the first port of call was to try and join Royal Melbourne. But Bruce said, look, you'd be better to join Victoria because it, Royal has a great um, program for young kids coming through now. But at the time, Victoria was probably the preeminent pennant club and had a lot of good players. So you sort of, one, got the great golf course, but you also got a great, um, with a lot of elite players. And um, that was really beneficial to my um, to my golf. In playing so many rounds and playing so well at Victoria, do you feel that there's a secret to playing the course or a guiding principle to playing the course really well? Probably the the secret to a good score is the great thing with Vic is you've got you've got sort of one eight which won't play as a par four in the Australian Open, but for the regular golf you've got one eight nine, fifteen, seven and eighteen that are all quite gettable holes. So I've always found if you can play those holes well and birdie all of them and even maybe sneak an eagle on on one or the other and then kind of break even on the rest of the golf course you you tend to shoot a pretty pretty good number that's always been my sort of philosophy around there with the prevailing sort of southerly winds there that most of them generally all play downwind which gives you good access to them and always find the course plays harder in northerly because those easier holes are played straight back into the wind of those holes that you listed do you feel that one of those is a clear favorite for you or do you do you find it too hard to to nail down one particular hole that you love on the course? Oh, I think at fifteen would have to, and it's a pretty popular view. Fifteen is such a wonderful hole because you've got the well. One's a great short par four. Fifteen really, by taking the hole on it, you bring more chance of making a bogey into play with the traps that run sort of from about around a hundred meters out all the way up down the left hand side and. I was actually there talking to Jeff Ogilvy about it the other day and was sort of every day as a member you stand up on that tee and you're like, well, it's just driver because you're, you're not really worried about making a bogey or that sort of stuff. But in the, we're like, what's the, what's the play in the, in the tournament? Is it still driver? And it probably depends a little bit on the flag. So that's that's your perfect golf hole, a hole that makes you stand on the tee and go, what's what's the play today? It's going to change depending on where the pin is, what the what the wind's doing, how I'm feeling. So that's a, it's a really special, special golf hole. What would be the shortest club that you've taken off that 15th tee? Uh, I'd probably hit, I reckon, a four or five iron's probably my shortest to give a give a four. When, often when the I find there's a back right flag that they tuck right in behind the bunker and if you can't get it right up to the green, then that's probably the flag where you're definitely going to kind of look to give yourself a full shot. So that probably a four or five iron that leaves probably around 90 to 100 metres, it's a full, gives you a full shot in. Okay. And that first hole, another great short par four, and that's changed since the time you commenced membership at Victoria. Do you find you face as many decisions on that tee as a professional or is it really sort of a, a quasi par three for you? Probably, yeah, a quasi par three, a sort of three, 3.5. It's, that's always, no matter where the flag is, that's always go for the green because you Essentially, into the breeze, you might maximum have a three wood downwind. You can sort of end up with a sort of four iron in your hand. And but the great thing with the hole is that I always tell people that are going there that the back left trap is pretty much any pin is no good. So you got to avoid that. I always sort of try and hit it, just miss that front right trap. And if I kind of sneak on the green, great. If I'm in the front right trap, as long as it's not a short front right flag, I've got pretty good access to the rest of the pins on the green. So the only really change is when there is that front right flag, I'll probably play a bit more left, but you still don't want to go in that back left trap because it's a, it tends to run towards the back of the bunker and 
leaves you with a you're actually just happy to get on the on the green from there. So it probably whereas fifteen brings bogey into play, you have to do something pretty drastically wrong to make five on on one, which is maybe a, a small limitation, but the hole is drastically improved from what was there previously and um is a is a great way to start the round. Yeah, I'd I've always loved it from the first time I saw it and then the first time I played it. It just made great sense to me to get people away from the entrance road. Be an interesting hole for members to start their round and a manageable hole on which they could start their round, but also it would hold interest for guys who are far more accomplished players. So I'm not surprised to hear you speak of it fondly. Is there one particular hole that you feel uh, viewers should keep their eye out for during the, the broadcast of the upcoming Aussie Open? Something that could be really pivotal in terms of the, the outcome of the tournament? The par threes at Victoria in general are they're a really strong set of set of threes. You've got four, which is quite narrow, and then you've got seven, which has got some of the best natural vegetation on the on the whole sand belt around around that hole. And it's a it's called Bishop's Gate, the left hand side. When it's downwind, you've got to kind of go through there and let it feed onto the green and then you've got the uphill 14th. But 16 has been a famous hole through recent tournaments that have been there. I remember Allenby hitting it over the back in a, I think it was a Vic Open and having a few shots down there. Uh, there was a player in a Masters, I forget who he was, that went over the back. But 16 is it's probably the strongest of the par threes on the golf course and really requires a uphill sort of 100 mid-170s with a shot that if you land it, when the greens are firm, if you land it on top, it's going to go over the back. If you don't land it on the right spot on the upslope, it'll kind of kick and just sit sit on the front. Your number one objective on the tee is don't hit it over the back, but to get it within a 15, 20-foot range is a, is a great shot. And when um, OCCM at the time redid the uh, redid the course, the, they added a front left flag, which will be really exciting. And I think they'll probably play that with a bit of a shorter tee for the men and women during the week and and you can kind of use a bit of use the slope to bring it in so that'll be that'll be good fun for the viewers to watch of the four par fives on the course do you have a clear favorite it might be a little bit controversial but i think 17 is is a fantastic hole and i'm i'm a bit sad that it's not going to play as a par five uh for us in the tournament they're they're looking to use a forward left tee which when they designed the hole i know they planned that in but when the dam went in, which was sort of mid two thousands, it sort of they had the bunkers on the left and the tee shot. You kind of had to go close to the dam, and it was a really average tee shot, and the holders didn't work that well. But when they recently redid the golf course, they moved the bunkers over to the right, and there's a really good sort of angled slope that off that back tee for the elite player. It's sort of a you got to get it close to the bunker and it'll kind of run down that hill and you get you end up with sort of 230 in. It's a great hole, whereas if you bail out left, you don't get that slope and you can't get there. So we kind of lose a bit of the, I feel, what's one of the best tee shots on the golf course by going shorter. So, But it'll still, yeah, it'll still play, play a good hole as a par four because the green's quite, with the bunker that juts in on the left, the back left flag will be really difficult with a, with a long iron to get close. It's funny, it's a bit of a maligned hole because of its location with that dam so visible, but there is a great deal of interest to it. For guys who have a long second who can get home in two and, and snare themselves a chance at an equal part, I imagine, yeah, it's a it's really enjoyable hole. It is, yeah. It's sort of a, it's a very, um, from a playing perspective, probably plays better than it looks. And the new green has improved it a lot from what was a, sort of a pretty average, sort of out of character green with the rest of the course. Now it's a 
<clears throat> kind of sweeps around to your left and 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 it's got lots of different pin positions that it so it's a much much improved hold since they uh, redid it in the sort of I think in 2017-18 period in all of your travels around the world playing golf professionally and also recreationally is there another course that feels similar to Victoria or reminds you of Victoria at all that's a good question uh played a lot of my golf in Asia so it's sort of it doesn't quite we play a course um sort of Gower in Japan that's sort of a little bit through the pine trees and it kind of feels a little bit we get a little bit of a little bit of that but nothing that's sort of really specific with Victoria it's sort of as as a sand belt they're sort of quite quite unique and um which is which is the great which makes them so special really yeah as a region I, all those courses on that sand belt have a similarity and I suppose it's hard it's very hard for another region in the world to compare to that in in a lot of ways here. Yeah. So you're you've got round two tomorrow in the Australian PGA. You travel down to Melbourne for the Aussie Open next week. What does the rest of the Australian summer or Southern Hemisphere summer look like for you competitively? Quite a busy schedule. I've got the yeah play the rest of this week out and then the Open, and I've actually I haven't had the best year in Japan, so I've got to go back up to tour school, and I'm I sort of tossed and turned all year over whether I'd play the Australian Open and because I this tour school starts on Tuesday, so I've got to get a Sunday flight, night flight out and get straight in. And so I'll do tour school in Japan, come back, have a week off, and then play the Sandbelt Invitational, which um, is one of the favourite events on the on the calendar, playing Kingsmeath, Royal Melbourne, Yarra Yarra and, and PK before Christmas. So that'll be a bit of fun. And, and then I'll probably try and play five or six Oh, Jeff Jeff's event down at Rosebud, another great golf course. Uh, might play Bonnie Doon, uh, New Zealand Open, Victorian Open at 13th Beach, one of the, my favourite events of the, of the year. And uh, then then hopefully all going well, be back up, up back up to Japan in sort of April. So um, and uh, yeah, keep the keep the journey going on. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us, Matt. Best of luck this week, particularly next week and for the rest of the summer. We'll um We'll all be keen to see how you fare when you head north and hopefully you put your best foot forward and fortune shines on you up there. Thank you. Thanks, Dad. So that brings our special Victoria episode to a conclusion. We hope you all enjoyed listening to Lily and Matt and that you enjoy looking not only at Kingston Heath but Victoria on TV this week as they co-host the 2022 Australian Open. Should be a wonderful week on TV. And as promised, we exit this episode with a special musical highlight from Kingston Heath as plugged in episode 9. We look forward to having you back for episode 11 where we look at another one of Australia's greatest golf courses. Built on the sand belt in Melbourne so grand By Sutar and Markham, mostly by hand Alastair McKenzie laid out the sand Holes with the length to demand Respect from the best in the land Seabrook, Fairway and Dutton Green Using hickory clubs and balls with a seam Kemschel, Flyer and the Springvale Hawk Could fly onto greens as they walk the length of the course was the talk Withstood the test of time Wearing the sax blue 
dark blue and gold Proudly playing at Kingston Heath Maturing like good wine Withstood the test of time Course held many a championship From Ferrier and Pickworth and our own MJ Ryan Others have come to challenge the plan And conquer the contours and sand Stonehaven cup in their hand Withstood the test of time Wearing the sax blue, dark blue and gold Gums and the eucalypts too Home to birds of all breeds Sheltering from the bay breeze Now a hundred years of golf have passed The greens are still hard but they're not quite as fast Many a change to improve the grand plan But the challenge remains the same be respected the best in the land Withstood the test of time Wearing the sax blue, dark blue and gold Proudly playing at Kingston Heath Maturing like good wine Withstood the test of time Withstood the test of time Wearing the sax blue, dark blue and gold Proudly playing at Kingston Heath Withstood the test of time Withstood the